previously on the Sports Refuge Podcast. It's funny, you know, I didn't really like those uniforms when I was a kid, but now I'm kind of into them, and I think part of it is just the nostalgia. From Delaware, almost live, this is the Sports Refuge Podcast. This is the weekly podcast featuring interviews with guests discussing their connection to sports. And now, here's your host, Earl Holland. We're here for episode 75 of the Sports Refuge, the show where guests share their connection to sports. Once again, I'm Earl Holland, your host. Basketball has run through Greg Bossman Sr.'s blood, dating back to his days playing in the backyard with his older brother. Playing at both Chris Field and Washington High Schools in his native Somerset County, Maryland, Bosman's height and offensive prowess eventually led him to garnering looks from NCAA Division I programs and stints playing at the University of Georgia and West Virginia University, before ultimately returning home and coaching at the high school level. In this episode, Bosman shares his journey to playing Division I basketball and what led to his departures from those programs, how he got into coaching at the scholastic level, and what it's like being an athletic director for two schools in one county. Right now, here's my interview with Greg Bosman Sr. Greg Bosman Sr., everybody calls you the Boz. I'm glad to have you here. How have you been? I'm great. I'm honored, and I told you earlier, I'm honored and humbled that you've asked me to be on. It's always a pleasure to see and talk to you about sports, especially the game of basketball. You know, this year has been a kind of rough year for me as far as uh, athletics because it's the first time in 30 years that I didn't coach a, a basketball team in some way, shape, or form because our winter sports season has been canceled. So it's, that part's been kind of rough, but I'm doing good. You know, I'm hanging in there, ready to get started. Hopefully we can get fall and spring going before school ends. One of the things you were telling me, especially before we started, was that you are doing a dual role as athletic director at both Washington High School and Crisfield High School, schools you both attended at one point. What is that like, and what led to that decision to take over the AD position at both schools, and what is it like scheduling? Well, it's going to be busy next year when we get back to some normal normal times. I've always wanted to do it. I've been asking to do it for some years now because no harm, but Washington Heights had a great turnover rate with her athletic director. And I've been an athletic director in the county for 15 years now, three of those at Washington in early 2000s. So I wanted to take a shot at it and, you know, try to make it both schools programs really nice. Like I said, I've had experience at both schools. I attended both schools, played basketball at both schools, and I've coached at both schools. So I felt like, you know, I'm all Somerset County, and that's what it's about. And even though my home base is Crisfield, I've been there the longest, and I love the Crabbers. But it's all about the kids. So the, all the kids from Somerset County, if you're helping them athletically, you know, why not give it a try? What is an average day like? What do you have to do, and, and how busy is it, and how time-consuming is it? Well, it's really tough on me in Somerset County because I have a full-time position at Crisfield High School as a learning support assistant. And that deals with a lot of counseling and discipline, lunch duty. I mean, you're busy all day long. I have a radio, so they're calling me to classes for different things and things that come along during the course of a day with the students. So there's never a dull moment because when they're calling you buys on the radio, a lot of times it's for athletics and, you know, you have to sit down. Most days, you know, it goes smooth because you already got your busing set up and squared away. You know what time the teams depart and what time they're supposed to arrive. If it's a home game, you've got the officials checks and everything ready for them. But what gets it kind of hairy is when the weather plays a factor. And, uh, you know, we 
get rain during baseball, softball season, and sometimes even soccer, field hockey, it can put a, a wrench because then you got to reschedule. You got to make the phone calls to make sure everybody's aware that there has been a change and it gets kind of busy on those days. How did you end up getting into coaching? And I guess we will probably start the whole story about how do you fall in love with basketball? Yeah, I was like seven years old and my brother was just, I guess he was watching basketball on television and he kind of like, you know, this looks like fun. And my dad put a court up in the backyard and, you know, we just started playing and we would emulate like back then it was UCLA was a big time college team. And he would always want to be UCLA, of course, and I'd be Notre Dame and we just kind of played one-on-one and, you know, I remember we loved it so much. The bus would be coming down the street and it'd be wintertime like it is now. And we all, we both had long hair at the time. And um, we'd play one-on-one before we went to school. And our hair was actually where we'd taken a shower before we played, which I don't know what that did. <laughs> but our hair was wet and it would freeze. And we'd get on the school bus and there'd be ice hanging from our hair. So, I mean, that was the love we had for it. And uh, I don't know, my dad was probably 6'3". My brother started to grow when he got in uh, junior high and high school when he was about 6'6". Six, six. Uh, and he had a, a really good high school career and went on and played at Salisbury State University. So he battled with me in the backyard playing one-on-one every day, kind of taught me the game. And then I started playing for junior high and then high school and grew to be eventually 6'8". So that's pretty much how it started. From high school, I transferred from Washington to Chrisfield, and I told you before, uh, great coaches. I'm never going to criticize anybody that I've ever played for because they've all been exceptional basketball minds. But I was a little bit ahead of my time because I was a guard and a big man's body, and that was kind of really – you didn't do that back then. I got yelled at on the playgrounds because, you know, I'm shooting 20-footers, and they want me to get in there rebound and – you know, you get labeled soft or whatever the case may be, but I was just a perimeter player. So I, I, I was a little frustrated at Washington and transferred to Chrisfield and Coach Kane let me face the basket a little bit more my senior year. So I had a pretty good senior year, but I wasn't best player in the Bay side or the best player on my team, but my, I guess you say upside, you know, your potential was there. From there, the best move I made was going to Fork Union Military Academy and prepping a year and I kind of really blossomed that year grew two more inches because I was about six six in high school grew to be about six eight and that's when I started getting a lot of college looks Uh, what is the biggest thing that you learned from your time at prep school was there a particular skill that you tried to refine or what was it to you that you learned the most from that experience I played for Fletcher Eric and uh, he's been nominated to be inducted in the hall of fame these past two years, and I'm hoping they will put him in this year because he's very deserving. Incredible basketball mind, role model, just a guy you meet. If you meet him in your lifetime, one, you've done something special when you're introduced to somebody that not only a basketball mind, but just a, a great person, you know, very religious. He was just a class act. So he kind of refined my knowledge of the game. Like I really thought, and this is not criticizing, that I had learned basketball from my brother and going to camps and Coach Kane and Coach Sterling and Coach Corbin and Coach Webster, everybody ever coached me. But when I got to Fork Union, I realized, man, I don't know much. And I think it was because the caliber of player that he was getting at Fork Union, he was able to step up what he was teaching. And uh, i never forget, he called me in the office. He said, Bosman, what do you do well? And I said, well, I shoot from deep. 
I can handle the ball. I'm very agile and I can run forever. And he said, well, we're going to teach you the art of moving without the ball, coming off screens and getting your shot off quick. And those were the skills I, I really honed there. And he helped me become a, a Division One basketball player. When you had the opportunity going to Georgia, what was the draw of Georgia and what did you think coaches saw in you there? Well, at Fort Union on, on Tuesday nights, we would set chairs up on a stage and uh, we had like a little semi-oval up there and we kept asking coach the first time we did it, you know, what are we doing? He said, don't worry about it. Just set them up. So we set up 20, 25 chairs. And the next thing you know, you got Dean Smith, Terry Holland, Lefty Drizel, Joe B. Hall was at Kentucky then. They're walking in the gym and we're like looking at each other like what in the world's going on? So those guys are in the chairs up on the stage and we go through our whole practice. We do a little scrimmage, but you know, Coach Eric was big into drills. Everything had to be game speed. So we go through practice. I had a pretty good practice. And uh, the next day we're, we're lined up. Uh, you know, every morning he had to wake up and salute the flag. And Coach Eric came in front of me, and I saluted him. And he said, when you get done eating, Bosman, Eddie Biedenbach from the University of Georgia wants to see you in the office. And I said, Coach, I'm not hungry. You know, you're talking about a kid from the Eastern Shore who had been recruited by Salisbury State, Dell State, and Coach Kirk Hall had, had showed some interest in me at UMES at the time. So I'm coming from, like, three schools wanting me, and the University of Georgia wants to talk to me. I don't have to eat. I'm ready to go talk to him. And uh, – of course, he told me I had to eat. I went and ate and met Coach Biedenbach, who had recruited Pistol Pete Maravich. And I sit down. I'm like, I can't believe it. I'm looking at, you know, this guy. And he said, we're prepared to offer you a full basketball scholarship to the University of Georgia. And I was like, oh, my God. So he had pay phones back then. I went out and he had, you know, wait your turn to get on a pay phone at Fort Union. And I'm putting the change in. And mom answers the phone. And I tell you. My brother's response when I told him, you know, he's since passed and I miss him every day, but he was happier than I was that I'd been offered a scholarship. I mean, he was just going crazy. So that was the start. And then, you know, they were the first big school to recruit me. There were several, you know, hundred really after that. But where Georgia had been the first one, I, you know, that's kind of sealed my decision, I think. What was it that made Georgia the most interesting choice? And then what was it like when you first got on campus there? Well, I knew Dominique was there. So you knew how great a college player he was and eventually how great a pro player he became. It became a contest between them and West Virginia. I love WVU. And of course, you know, I ended up being there, but it's cold there and it snows a lot. And Georgia is warm. So I like warm weather. When I first got on campus, the first thing I wanted to do is meet Herschel Walker uh, because he was a star football player and the Heisman Trophy winner. And uh, I did have the pleasure of meeting him, getting introduced to him. But Georgia, I think my biggest issue there was I did not go down there in the shape that I should have been in, even though we ran like a 3.2 mile early on. And I ran at like 17.36. I mean, I could run long distance all day long. But I got shin splints really bad. And I think it was because I spent that summer, instead of really working like I should have worked on my game, I spent it kind of my head was about this big because I was walking around the Eastern Shore and everybody knew I had got this scholarship to the University of Georgia. Of course, a lot of people back home were like, I can't believe he's he's that good to go to Georgia now because they're still thinking, you know, how I was in high school as opposed to now. But I, you just get so much better 
and you get older and get stronger. But I love the campus of Georgia. It was just kind of ran into the same thing with Hugh Durham. He wanted me to play more of a power forward position. And that just wasn't what I was. Uh, I never could figure that out because Biedenbach had saw me, you know, with a lot of perimeter skills. And that's what he was telling me he was most impressed with. But then when I got to Georgia, it was like, we don't want you to do as much of that. We want you to back up Terry Fair, who was a power forward at the time. What led to your decision ultimately to leave Georgia? And then what happened next? Who? Oh. I left kind of abruptly. I remember all the guys on the team were up on the ledge in McCorder Hall, which was the athletic dorm, and they were like kind of dumbfounded because they knew, like Vern Fleming, who ended up playing in the NBA, would often tell me that you got all the offensive skills, you just need to strengthen yourself and work on your defense and rebound. And then, you know, at that level, you got to wait unless you're some phenom. It was junior, senior year, I probably would have started and or at least, you know, saw the floor a lot. And I just wasn't, I didn't understand that at the time. I was looking at, I need something to happen right now. So I packed up and left. And when I got home, uh, my mom was the only person that would speak to me. My dad and my brother didn't have much to say to me at all. They were very disappointed. And my brother called Coach Eric at Fork Union and told him what I'd done. And Coach Eric said, you need to drive him here to campus. And I'll never forget it. We went in my mom and dad's car and drove to Fork Union. And, uh, you know, walking in there and knowing that you've disappointed somebody that you look up to so much, it was hard. But he called uh, Gail Catlett from West Virginia, explained to him the whole situation. And Catlett said, you have him here first of next semester and we'll give him a full scholarship and he can play at WVU. And it, and it was like, I didn't even have a choice, but they took my car away from me. So my brother, my brother drove me to West Virginia initially. They did get my car back. but He took me to school when I ended up at West Virginia. Going back quickly to Georgia, was that the year that Georgia made the Final Four? Well, yeah. So I'm, I'm at West Virginia. I'm practicing with the team every day. They go to the NCAA tournament. Very good team. A lot of talent on that team. So, you know, I'm, I'm practicing all of January, all of February, then the NCAA tournament starts and guess who wins the East regional and beats Michael Jordan's North Carolina team and goes to the final four, the Georgia Bulldogs, which I'm listed in all these newspapers and magazines and different things it's being on the team. My name was still listed on the roster. So I could tell a story and say I was on a final four team, you know, but I had left and it, it haunts me to the day because I mean, what's the chances of a, a young man from Chrisfield and Princess Anne, Maryland to make the final four and, you know, a chance to play on a final four team. So I wasn't feeling real good that March. Fast forward, moving to now being at Morgantown. What was it like once you're finally there? How were you able to overcome the cold weather and what was the experience? I really should have stayed at West Virginia. I'd had a, a nice setup there. My roommate, Dale Blaney, he ended up getting drafted by the Lakers. Great player, great, great guy. We're still friends. I get invited back to the reunion every year. They have it, so which, which is really nice. But I'm listed as the best shooter at the forward position that Coach Gail Catlett had ever coached, which I got those clippings. are kind of like my treasure, you know, from the college days. But started off, I played like four games. I was playing about 12 minutes a game. And uh, my mom had had some health issues really the whole time I was at Fort Union, Georgia, and, and they had gotten a little worse at West Virginia. 
And I had fell in love with a girl back home. And unfortunately, she came down for a weekend. And when she went back, I went behind her. And that was the end of the West Virginia career, which, I mean, every time I go back to the reunion, those guys just said, you kind of just disappeared. And it's crazy because Coach Catlett had called my dad at his hardware store and said, he could come back right now. We're going to start him on the next road trip because he, we needed some outside shooting. And um, I never went back. But I, I struggled um, with coming off the bench. You know, like I could never get into flow. I'd get a couple shots during the game. I needed to be out there. And I think Catlin knew that, and that's why he wanted me to come back, and he was going to start me because he knew I needed those minutes because all the blue-gold inter-squad games, I, I, you know, I was I was scoring anywhere from 18 to 20, 25 points a game. But when you're young and, you know, you got a lot of personal problems going on, it, you know, you tend to do things that you normally wouldn't do. Do you talk about being an outside shooter in an era – before the three-point line really came in in the NCAA. How do you feel you would have thrived in the NCAA with the three-point line? Oh, my. Two things. I always said if I had the three-point line and the game was like it is now where big men, it's like natural now. They play the perimeter if they're capable. And and the second thing is if I had played at a school like Loyola Marymount in the late 80s, early 90s, um, who knows? Uh, and I definitely feel confident in my ability from the age of 19 to early 30s that I could have definitely played overseas professionally. So I don't know where it would have led, you know, defensively and, and strength wise, I would have struggled, you know, in the NBA on offensive end, I'd been fine, but you got to have the whole package to play in that league. Was but, there any thought about playing uh, internationally even after leaving West Virginia? I was working at ECI from like 88 to 2000. And there I played against the greatest player I've ever played against and Skip Wise, who was a, a from Baltimore, Maryland, played at Dunbar and Clemson. He was just incredible. We were allowed to play against the inmates. And he just, I can't imagine how good he was in his 20s because I played against him from like 32 to 35. But there was a captain there at one time. I can't even remember his name. And he had some friends in the Celtic organization and he talked about getting me a tryout with them, you know, because he was impressed watching me play. But overseas, even back then, wasn't as um, accessible as it is now. You basically, if you went overseas, then you would finish four years of playing at a high level or, or you know, if even if you were D2 or NAI, you were an All-American. And, and that's how you got over there. So I don't know. I think I give that some thought at that time when he was talking about it. But shortly after that, my daughter was born and, you know, you, you got to have some stability and, and that was a state job. So it just never panned out. But, you know, like I said, I came from what I would call a pretty good high school career, not an outstanding high school career. And I just blossomed at, at prep school. So who knows? I mean, I feel like I was good enough offensively to play anywhere. But like I said, you got to have the whole package to play in the league, you know. I know that you have a pretty big routine of getting up and shooting every morning. What does It'll that routine do. consist of, and uh, how long do you spend in the gym? Well, it used to be a little longer. I'm 57 now, so, so it's not as long as it was. But my routine is to get up. I get up at 3, and I get to the gym at Chrisfield. Um, 
and I'll shoot a series. I start right out shooting. I got it like an old shoot away. You've probably seen it on Facebook when I was filming it. Uh, it serves the purpose, but I'll shoot like a series of 10 and then I'll lift. Um, you know, one, one day I'm doing chest, then I'm doing arms, then I'm doing uh, shoulders. So I kind of rotate them. And I try to put up about 300 shots a day. Used to be five, 500 to 1,000, but you get a little older, you slow down a little bit. But it's, it's more for my mental state of mind now. I mean, I can still shoot it. It's just uh, I don't move as well as I used to. But that, I still do it every day. I got my alarm set already on my phone for tomorrow morning. Who could you best compare your style of play to? Maybe someone who played in the NBA in the past, say, 15, 20 years, especially the game keeps continuously evolving. Mm, man. Would have to be an outside shooter. A lot of people don't know because – I played in like the 70s, 80s, 90s, and into the 2000s and played against my son and all his his era. And they, they didn't realize at the time that I was mid-40s to 50. And, you know, so I was just basically a shooter, you know, but I could handle. I could, I could actually at one time, especially, you know, like in the early 80s and mid eighties, I could, I could play point guard at six, eight teams would press me in the summer league and I could, I had no problem, you know, going by him and, and, and handling the one. But I think Luke was a little more savvy, you know, watching him play than maybe I was, but I could definitely grab a rebound and go coast to coast and pull up from 30. So I, I don't know, a little mixture of maybe bird and him and uh, a guy named Oscar Smith, from Brazil, who I emulated a lot. I think I became a better shooter after about 24. I watched him play in, in the Pan Am games, and I stopped trying to prove to everybody that I could be a guard and wasting a lot of energy. And then I started coming off screens, and and I think I became a lot better shooter then because I didn't expand so much energy putting the ball on the floor. So I don't know. I'm a combination of all those guys, but I was definitely a different type of player than what I was supposed to be back in the 80s, that's for sure. To you, what do you feel is the one skill that ages well? My shots age well. <laughs> but the ability to move, I mean, it's frustrating. I try not to think about it because I was so agile at one time. And now, you know, my I've had a, I got a real bad ankle. So it's kind of your eye for the basket, I don't think, ever leaves. If my ankles are feeling good and I'm shooting in the morning and I've got a good sweat going, I can drain one right after the other without a problem. That I don't think that ever leaves. What is the key to a good long distance shot? Because I know even at my height, I'm I'm barely five eight. I could never get enough lift or even get a good aim to hit anything maybe outside of ten feet. Well, what helped me and I you know, was playing against my brother, so I think the best thing and I wanna say there were a lot of great shooters in my generation was the fact that there were no threes initially when we started to learn how to shoot. So everything was a two. So you learn the proper form of keeping your elbow in and following through. And it didn't matter if you shot a 10-footer or a 15-footer. It was all two points. I think youth, and I did it with my son, and I, I wish I hadn't. I, I was so impressed with him being able to shoot it at seven or eight years old, but he was shooting it from here to get it there. You know what I mean? And then, you know, you got to go through a whole other process to get them to shoot properly. So I think the curse, as much as I love the three, I think it should be totally off limits to anybody 
you know, I guess they got to have it in high school, but I would say junior high on down any middle school programs, there shouldn't even be a three point line on the court because the form of these younger players, it's killing them, you know, in your case, if you, you know, I don't know how old you are, but I'm not saying that was your problem, but to me, the form, once you develop the form and a muscle memory, you know, then you can extend, extend your range where you can shoot a little bit deeper. But I think these kids are they're just slinging it up there at a young age and they're not learning how to shoot properly. Yeah, I'm being 37. I was yeah, I was pretty much at a certain point I was one of the tallest kids and then became one of the largest kids, but never grew any taller than five eight. So it's basically well, you're pretty much going to play the post even though you may not be good. Yeah. Just get rebounds. That's all you can. I was gonna say that the three pointer is sort of the basketball equivalent to having kids throw a curveball at a young age because it can really, really do some damage if they're not doing it right, not proper mechanics, and really not learning the the basics of it. Well, one of the greatest shooters ever was Rick Mount. He played at Purdue in, in like the late 60s, early 70s. Went on and had a little bit of an ABA career. But his dad, he actually taught him, like, you know, he started out on a little court with a little ball. And then each year he got stronger, he moved it up. And, you know, teaching him the proper form and technique. And, you know, now you watch a high school game, if the kids can sneak on the floor like a – during halftime, ball's rolling around. The first thing they do is go right to the three-point line and throw it up there any way they can to get it up there. And so, like I said, as much as I love that three-point line, wish it had been around for my whole career, it's been very detrimental on uh, shooting form uh, for young players. You talked about a stint at ECI working there. How did you get there, and what is the biggest takeaway from your experience working at ECI? Mm. Well, I'd thrown away pretty much my basketball career as far as college. And, and so my mom and dad were getting a little frustrated with me, more so my dad. I uh, worked in Ocean City in the summertime. I was playing ball in all the men's leagues and tournaments, but had no steady income, career. And my dad had always harped on getting a state job or a county job. They've got benefits. they got retirement. He, like, preached that to us when we were younger. So um, ECI was just kind of opening up, and Dad said, look, you got to do something. So I took the test, did very well on the test, and I got in an, an academy. And right from the beginning, I, I'm not a – it's a career, and it's a good career for a lot of people, and it's a respectful career, but I knew it wasn't for me. Uh, they actually put me on 4-12 to 12 shift, and I was getting ready to quit because I knew that was the end of the basketball tournaments and leagues and – my brother, who was a counselor there, taught me into staying and said, look, just stick it out. and You'll get a shift change, which I did. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it provided for my family. It was, um, you know, good benefits, good pay for this area. The perk was that we could play basketball against the inmates, and they were extremely talented. It was the best competition around because it was so much talent in there. And then uh, we also had an employees league there, and it was pretty competitive. So that that was all good. But um, I guess when in 2001, my dad passed away and, and kind of once he passed away, I, my dislike for the job, him passing away, I just kind of walked away from it. I shouldn't have because I was only seven years away from retiring from there. But biggest takeaway, I guess I was never one that like felt like it was our job to punish the guys that were in there. They had made a mistake and, you know, I'd made a lot of mistakes, so. 
I just did my job the way I was supposed to, took count, made sure nobody was harming each other. And, you know, but you learn, you know, you talk to those guys, they've made a lot of mistakes. Some of them are real sincere about it. And then you had some in there that, you know, didn't care that they made mistakes. So you just kind of learn people, I guess. I became a better, maybe, I don't know, judge is the word because you're not supposed to judge people, but I, I could, you know, I, I kind of sense if a person's got a good heart or, you know, so it taught me those things, just, you know, how to learn people, interactions and different things. Yeah, and I understand that's an experience where you have to be a particular type of person to be able to handle the rigors of that. I know my brother, he well, and I got the utmost respect for those guys. And ones that stay 20 years, I mean, or, or longer, look, I have nothing but respect for them. I think they're just like the police. They, they've got a tough job, you know, and not, not everybody can do it. What led to your decision to move into uh, the educational system and, and eventually coaching? Well, coaching um, came before, my, my actual job in the school, um, being a division one player and kind of not bragging or nothing, but well-known as a basketball player, I was always allowed to come out and play pickup ball at Crystal high school. You know, it was like the, you know, star coming home. So I was, they welcomed me in there. So, um, with that, I was always spending time. I entered a, a youth. I was just talking about it the other day, a group of guys like in 84, 85, maybe 86, somewhere in that range. They were all like ninth and tenth graders, and I entered them in a men's league and trying to get them playing against great competition and, and kind of guide them. So we play pickup ball, and I'm teaching while I'm playing. They're respecting me because of my talents and where I played, and just started giving back and realizing that they need guidance, like I needed guidance. So that went on for two or three years of you know playing in the summer league and, and trying to give back and playing pickup ball, and then I think it was '89 maybe the spring of 89, uh, Mr. Phil Rayfield would play pickup ball with us a lot of times. And his son was uh, like eighth or ninth grader in high school at the time. So we're playing and the principal stops the game. It's probably four o'clock in the afternoon. Schools are shut down. And he calls Mr. Rayfield out in the hallway. Uh, Mr. Rayfield at the time was coaching the girls team at Christopher High School. So Mr. Rayfield comes back into gym and I says, is everything all right? He said, yeah. He said, how would you like to be? my assistant coach next year because Mr. Riggins just asked me to be the head boys basketball coach here at Christopher high school. And of course I'm late. I'm in, you know what I mean? So that's how it started. He, he asked me and he asked coach Dale Turpin to become his assistant. In 1990, 91, we became the uh, staff at Christopher high school. And that year we won a Bayside championship. We had an all, unbelievable talent on that team and the team the following year. So that's how it all started. You were one of the people, first people I talked to when, when Coach Rayfield passed, and, and you talked about the influence that he had on him. What was the biggest key piece of knowledge that you were able to get from Coach Rayfield? Oh, man. Much like Coach Eric, like I was fortunate, you know, besides my brother and my father, that I had two male figures come into my life that were just incredible people. He started right off with that program. He said, we're going to run it like UCLA. Um, he did some things that you probably can't do in the school system anymore. You know, you put God first, family second, and then school and then basketball down the line. He had all the quotes, put them up all over the locker room. And that's how we carried the program. You had to wear a sport coat and a tie. Uh, Those teams went to uh, each team member's church on Sunday as a team, you know, bonded with the community. He was a lot calmer than me. I was like hyper and real talkative and, and 
he he was more mellow. So it would give me a little balance in my life. And he just incredible, incredible coach, incredible person. I mean, he did a great job with that program. When you ended up moving on and taking on the head coach level, what was your first head coaching job? So I helped coach Rayfield was actually his bench assistant the first two years. And then different things. I got married and work schedule, whatever. I, I couldn't devote myself to be at a practice all the time, but I was like the conditioning coach for like the next four or five years for him. So I was still staff member. Um, and some games I would attend, it would just, when I could or be there, I'd, I'm on the bench. But anyhow, I did that until like 98 and then 98, he came to me and he said, what do you think about coaching the girls basketball program here? And I was like, coach, girls, like, I can't, I don't know. I don't know if I can coach girls basketball. And he said, well, look, they've had a terrible past. Don't win many games. Nobody takes pride in the program. And I think you could do a good job with them. So I accepted the the position as girls head coach in 98, 99. And uh, we were 0-23 that first year. And I remember not mentioning any names, but coaches would press you like, I'm as competitive as any man on this earth, but I do believe if you're winning a high school basketball game, 70 to 15 in the fourth quarter, you don't have to have a full court press on. And that's how my first couple of games were. And I remember going back to Mr. Tim Tolls, who was the AD. And I said, is this how this is supposed to be? And he said, well, I endured it for three years that I coached the girls here. He said, I know. And I said, well, I was 37 at the time, and I remember thinking to myself, if I'd been 25, I, that would have been my last year coaching girls basketball. But something clicked. Like, I was at the Civic Center, and at that time, years ago, all at one time they played all the playoff games at Salisbury State, but at that time they played them all at the Civic Center. So Mr. Bill Kane, my high school coach, came to my – they actually there were watch Chrisville's boys, but we happened to play, like, before them. And we got beat, of course, in the – final game of the, uh, our season and the first game of the playoffs. And I remember he walked over there to me and he said, you're going to be a great coach. And I was like, Coach Kane, I was 0-23 and, and I just lost, you know, by 20 points to Colonel Richardson. Why are you saying that? He said, because you coached from the first moment of the game to the last moment and it didn't matter what the score was, you were still coaching. And, uh, I, you know, it just clicked, and I made a vow then that we're going to pay all these schools back. We're going to build this program because nobody cares about the girls, and I can't leave them after one year like everybody else has been doing. I'm going to stick this out and make something of this program. And that's kind of how it started me as a head coach. When it comes to your coaching style, what do you say? Are you more a uh, – I know they always talk about when coaches at any sport, it's sometimes more about the Jimmys and Joes and the X's and O's. Were you more a strategic person or more of a get the most out of a player? Well, at this level, and, and especially girls where I you know, started as my head coach, and I'm a firm believer in they needed a lot of skill work. So you do a lot of fundamental ball handling drills, layup drills, shooting drills, because it doesn't matter. And I'm speaking to this first group that I coach. It didn't matter if I ran all these sophisticated offenses, if at the end result, the girl that came off the screen can't shoot, you know what I mean, or she can't put the ball on the floor. So I, I was a big-time hour and 15 minutes, hour and a half straight fundamentals. And then we put in sets and different things at the end for out of bounds plays or offense or whatever the case may be. And it was very successful for us. So I think at this level, 
you have to be a motivator. You have to be a father, a counselor, you know, but you got to stress those fundamentals because the X's and O's are great. And I'm not saying, you know, I don't know the X's and O's, but I always felt like at a high school level and that boys and girls, it's, it's a little bit more to it than just the X's and O's. So I'm a little bit of a combination of that, but girls wise, I think you just need to get them in the gym and, uh, work on their skill because they don't play as much pickup ball normally as boys do. So it doesn't come as natural to them. So you have to work at it a little bit. But I guess I'm kind of old school when it comes to that. I think that you put in that work in the gym, like a kid can't dribble with his left hand. If you're never working on that, you know, sooner or later, that's going to bite you during the game. So I think fundamentals come first. And then as they develop and get a little more skilled, then you put in a little more X's and O's. When did you start seeing the turnaround with the girls and what was the, highlight moment where you saw these girls have the potential to win the conference? We were on a a five-year plan and we didn't win the first year. We won seven and then we won eight the next two years. And that third year, I kind of felt like it was coming together. The girls were starting to develop. Like I said, we did a lot of dribbling drills, a lot of ball handling, layup drills. And you can see girls that normally couldn't handle the ball and now they're starting to, you know, go between her legs behind her back and do little fancy moves and each state, but they're starting to get it. So we got into playoffs my fourth year there and we went on a run and we were at Mardella. Actually where I thought they got it was probably a Snow Hill game. Snow Hill was one of the first teams that beat me like 75 to 13 that first year. And we played fabulous. So we had beaten, you know, some, lower seeded teams, you know, but this was a marquee team. And uh, I'm watching the girls and we're up and I'm looking at the clock and, and, and Nitra Cannon's at the free throw line and she's shooting free throws. And I hear all this crying behind me on the bench. And I look out on the floor and like two or three of the girls are crying and we're up. We basically, this game's over. And then I start crying, you know what I mean? And everybody was like, what in the world? all crying over but these girls you know went from 0 and 23 nobody caring about them you know and now they're there and um we went on a run that year and i'll never forget nicole brown hit uh two free throws to put us up by three against cambridge and we won the semifinals to go to the regional final they claimed that i started jumping up and down in front of the scores table and I jumped all the way underneath our basket free throw. And that's where I ended up. I don't know how true that is. But uh, Mr. Tom Davis had to come in the locker room and actually get me out of the locker room. I was so emotional wreck for celebration on the floor because, uh, you know, when, when you see these kids, that you know, basically crawling and out of running, you know, I mean, it was just a tremendous feeling. Best five years to this day of my basketball life was that first five years of coaching those girls. After Crisco Girls, where did you move next? Well, we, we went back to the regional final uh, the next year. So it was two years in a row we got beat by Mardell and Pocomo, two premier girls basketball programs. And then the superintendent of schools and the assistant superintendent of schools, and I think the director, came to me and asked me if I would be interested in coaching the boys team and being an athletic director at Washington High School. And um, – <sighs> Well, it was a struggle because I didn't want to leave Chris. I was comfortable there. But then part of me was like, you need to try to better yourself, you know, with the AD position included and coaching head coach of boys basketball. Try your luck at boys basketball. 
So I accepted it and kind of, I, I felt bad because a couple of the girls that I left behind, I didn't realize how much I had hurt them by leaving them. So I, that kind of weighed on me because sometimes when you make these moves and you're only thinking about you, you don't realize how much effect those moves have on others. And that bothered me, but I loved it at Washington High. I tell you the story, I probably still would be there coaching boys, but um, we went in and kind of turned that program around. They had been struggling a little bit, and uh, we got it going. Coach Rob McCready and myself put in a lot of time and had three good years there. But um, my son was actually getting into basketball then, and he was a crabber all the way. So, you know, I'm thinking I got this head coaching job. You can come to Washington and play for me. He said, Dad, I'm not playing for Washington. I'm playing for Chrisville. <laughs> so I envisioned myself eventually going back. I knew Mr. Rayfield wasn't going to coach much longer. Maybe I'll go back and, and hopefully get that position and, and have a chance to coach boys at Chrisville. But things that just went different directions for me. You had a year at Snow Hill. What was that like coming in, especially with uh, – I know you were there when, when Little went to Snow Hill as well, and then – and the situation when Alan Miller passed, you were named the head coach. What was that experience like taking over? And it's a situation where you're coming in. It's a whole different team from the team that yeah. went to States. What was that experience like? They were a great bunch. And, and I think you lose your whole starting five that goes to college part from the year before. I think we had one returning starter come back. So, I mean, the guy, you know, it was just we were lacking some size, you know, and, and a couple of things. But I enjoyed the year. I mean, I didn't. I guess a lot of people felt like I was under a lot of pressure to win because because of Coach Miller being there before me. But people from Snow Hill were great. You know, I mean, I think they realized that we were battling and we, we were competing, but we just weren't the teams that they had had before. You got to be realistic in that. I was happy that we won the very first game in honor of Coach Miller because he was such a legend on the Eastern Shore. Nobody can replace a guy like that. You know, I mean, I didn't go in there expecting to replace him and you know, just a great, great coach. And, you know, it, it was a good year. I can't say I didn't enjoy it. I could have stayed there, but I chose – this is crazy, but I was athletic director at Crisfield and head coach of another high school's program. You know, I just didn't feel real comfortable with that. And I don't know. I, I just, you know, figured it, it was time just to return to Crisfield as AD and, and help with the basketball program down there. Mm-hmm. And just to close to the chapter on Snow Hill, I have to imagine that the players were still reeling over his loss because it was something so sudden, too. I remember yeah. hearing the news when he passed away. I was at work when I heard the news. Actually, I think it was off that day. I think my nephew or my niece told me, and then I was shocked when it happened. But Yeah, actually, um, had we had to go get my son from school that day because he was so upset. I mean, you know, because it was so sudden. And, you know, I, I don't care. It's just tragic, you know. Anybody passing away, and, and he was such a, a legend in that community. He was just, I don't know. It was it was a tough year, but I tell you, I can't complain. Those kids were great. They were a fun bunch to be around. Friends with almost all of them on Facebook. I tried to stay in touch with them. I saw one the other day in Salisbury, and, you know, you give me a big old wave. We had a good year. It just it was a tough year. You're not as talented as, as the team was the year before overall. And then, of course, Coach Miller's passing, and it was just – you know, I look back on it, and I, I'm, I'm glad I did it. You know, I mean, it was an experience for me and, and something different for me. And um, like I said, I was really honored that we won that first game and we had dedicated that first game to him. So that means a lot to me that we did win that game and we, we did it in his honor. So, 
good program. Moving back to Chris Field, I know you took the helm again of the girls' team. Before we go into that discussion about taking over the girls' team again, comparing coaching boys to girls, really, what are the big differences that you see in coaching each? What do you feel like is the biggest fundamental that lacks in each gender when it comes to basketball? Well, uh, girls, to me, I think I've enjoyed coaching the girls a little bit more than the guys because they listen, and it's just kind of – they're so emotional at times, you know, like when they win or something's going good for them, you know I mean? It's just a joy that you see that they're, I mean, it just comes right out. They're like ecstatic over a move they've made or a shot they've made. Or Boys are trying at times. I've coached AAU, I've coached middle school, I've coached high school. I have a knack of always relating pretty well with most of the players that I coach because I just have a good rapport with them. So I, I don't know if I favor one or the other. Watching the development in girls as far as their skill level from where they start to where they begin is really fulfilling because you see a big, big change in, in their game. But um, I've enjoyed both. Now, as far as their fundamental weakness, I think the boys don't work on fundamentals enough. They want to skip the fundamentals and go right to the fancy stuff. And I think that's very frustrating because a lot of times their shots affected by it and their ball handling is affected by it. And uh, you got a process. And I think back in our day, we took that process. We learned, we went to camps, we learned the fundamentals, the footwork, uh, the proper way of doing things. So if these guys now with all this athletic ability would do that, oh my gosh, I can't imagine, you know, the product that would be coming out. Going into the rebuild again of, of the girls program in Crisfield, what was the difference between this go round and the first go round? Um, not much difference. I felt like the, the girls that I had the, the first go around were they ran track and they played basketball. So you, you didn't have, and trust me, I think kids should play all sports, but I didn't have to battle in the summertime. When I got them in a summer league, they all were in the summer league. So this group has been a lot of field hockey players and they play field hockey year round. So it's kind of hard to get them in the off season to get in a summer league or go to camps. And, and that makes it difficult because that's when you, you really develop from the end of the season in March to November. That's when you work on becoming a, a better basketball player. And then you refine it and practice and, and show it off during the game. So this time I've had great experiences. We've beaten all, you know, at one time or other, we've beaten everybody in the conference during this stretch. We made it to a sectional final a couple of years ago. So we've had some success, but I've had some things happen. I've had some girls leave the program and transfer, not for so much basketball reasons, but they moved or different things happen. If a couple of girls stay, like last year we struggled, uh, only won two games, but, but our best player left us. And if she had come back, we probably would have won the region. And her actual senior class, I had uh, every girl – and it was a great freshman class. They all left for different reasons. If they had been there last year, we we definitely would have won the region. And, and I don't know how we would have done it at the state level, but the regional championship would have been ours. So those things have happened a little more. I don't want to blame it on the times, but because I did it. How am I supposed to criticize transferring when I've done it? Or I did it several times, both at the high school and college levels, you know, but we're, we're too easy to get disgruntled over things instead of, you know, communicating, fighting through some things and, and sticking it out. And sometimes you go to places and things don't turn out that well there either. So other than that, I mean, this run's been good. 
I think it could have been a lot better. I do think the year we went to the sectional finals, I think we would have won it. But one of my best players didn't play the year before. She just didn't want to play basketball that year. If she had played, you know, had another year under her belt, there's no doubt in my mind that, that we would have probably won the region that year too. So, I mean, we've had success, but it, it's just been a little different because, of, you know, when girls are playing other sports, when field hockey starts, they go play field hockey. When softball starts, they go play softball. Those girls ran track. So, I mean, track practice, you run, you know, you're training, but it's not like they don't have like a track summer league. And so those girls were in the gym a lot more. I think that's the only difference. And they were incredible athletes. One thing I forgot to ask you, aside from basketball, what was your other favorite sport to play? None. <laughs> no, I actually love all sports. I was, I started out as a swimmer and, and a baseball player. I was a pretty good swimmer when I was younger and made the little league all-star team a couple years. So I was a pretty good baseball player. And I love the, you know, other sports playing football in the backyard and all, but it, it's just something about basketball that just kind of hooked me early on. And then, you know, when I had some rough moments, I look back, I was five ten and a half in the ninth grade, and by the end of my tenth grade year, I was six four and a half. So that's like six inches. You grow, you know what I mean. And that kind of hurt me a little bit because I I can remember just being in pain. You know, a lot of times legs were hurting and everything. Never could understand why, but you know that growth spurt that you take at that age, it was rough. But never stopped loving basketball. I mean, it's just it's just been something that kind of on my mind. 24 hours a day. It's, it's crazy to say that, but, you know, I mean, you're always thinking about something, you know, p- playing it, uh, when you play it, who you played against, a uh, game you coached. It's just, you know, maybe uh, maybe I'm a little bit too much fanatical over it. I don't know. I can't even – even now at my age, I don't like watching a game because if I watch it, I want to play. You know, I, it's, I just, just love it. But other than that, I guess swimming and, and baseball early on were probably right there. Who's your favorite all-time NBA player, and who's your favorite NBA player now? Well, I like Bird because I thought, you know, he came in and, and, and played a perimeter game at 6'9", and, and I like the way he changed the game a little bit, him and Magic. Um, my favorite player is Oscar Smith from Brazil. Uh, you know, I just kind of fell in love with him as a shooter and a scorer and, and it kind of tried to emulate, you know, the way he played. So he's probably my my favorite player of all time. I don't know. I, I like Jordan and, and uh, you know, Kobe Bryant. I got respect for those two because I think they, they work. People don't understand how hard they work on their game when they, you know, they were just there. There's guys probably that have come along in the NBA that were as good as them, but I don't know if they had that work ethic that they had and that killer instinct. So I respected both of them. Magic Johnson, I think is a, uh, you know, just an unbelievable six nine point guard. I I liked his game also. Uh, if I had to pick one today, I like Curry. I like Curry because I I proved everybody wrong. I wish you could. I don't know how to pull it up on Facebook, but when he came in the league, everybody was talking about Brandon Jennings and some other players. And I said, this kid is going to be the best player. And they were like, no, he's too small. He did. But I knew his dad was an NBA player, so it's in his bloodline, and his work ethic. I don't think people understand how hard he's worked on, you know, all those things that they think are so amazing now. I mean, he puts in hours and hours a day refining those little moves he does and getting a shot off quick. So I, I'm a big fan of, of, of Curry. 
I was going to say this. Who do you think is the greatest NBA player of all time? I know it's a thing. Michael that Jordan. Goes, Jordan. I, Michael you, Jordan. <laughs> see, I look at it, and I had this discussion before. You know, I look at Kareem, Jordan. To me, I think it's Kareem and, and Jordan 1A, 1B, because just because what Kareem could do and just the fact that a big man who could uh, really push the ball up the court and just what he could do and just the fact that I look at the dunk rule that they basically had named after him for a long time. You can't, like, I, uh, and I say Jordan, you know, that's who I believe. I'd say he's the best ever Jordan is. My dad used to say that Wilt was, and then he said that Bird and Magic were, but when Jordan retired from the NBA and played baseball for those few years, you know, he came back. He wasn't as athletic as he once was. You know, you know what I mean? He had lost a, a step and couldn't jump like he once could. But Dean Smith <laughs> had taught him a lot of fundamentals at North Carolina in that short period of time. And people don't realize his footwork was just incredible. And he was able to come back and still win, what, three more NBA championships after, you know, after being out for a while and being older. And that's when my dad looked at me and said, he's the best ever. You know, you can argue LeBron, you can argue Jabbar, Wilt, all great players, Magic, Bird, um, Kevin Durant. I mean, these guys are incredible. But to me, Jordan, with his killer instinct and uh, his work ethic and that ability – even after he lost some athleticism, I, I think he's the greatest of all time in my mind. Do you feel that the NBA has evolved to uh, more of a guards game than it was a big man's game in its early days? I think the rules have changed so much to me. And I think Luca says it often that it's harder to score overseas than it is in the NBA. And I, I believe that. Like I watch some of the NBA highlights and I'm like, man, if I, if I had that space – at 57, I can make that shot. You know what I mean? It's just so wide open. And I think it's it's fan-friendly. You know what I mean? No hand-checking and the defensive three seconds or the call, you know, where you can't just clog the lane up and everything like that. It's made it – you know, fans don't want to come and watch an NBA game and the game's 80 to 89. They want 120 to, you know, 119, and they want to see the dunks and the flare and the flash. So, I mean, it's – it's a great game, and and my gosh, you know they're they're great athletes and all, but I think it's an easier game now. I think it'd be easier to score in today's NBA setting as it was back in the '70s and '80s when they could bump you and and basically foul you. <laughs> but um, I'm not saying that these guys aren't great basketball players, but I do think it's it's a it's a fan friendly game. It's more for entertainment now. They put on a show. They're very good. So. Still love it, you know what I mean? But I just think the game has changed. Was there a particular matchup that you enjoyed coaching against or playing against that when you hear this name, okay, I'm ready, my game's going to be elevated? Um, Pretty much all these young guys that play now, you know, even when Andre was overseas and he was coming home, um, you know, I had that little, I'm going to show him that old man can still do it. Uh, you never want to let anybody show you up. You know, I just – I played better when I was a star on the other team, and I felt like I had something to prove. So, I guess the Collins brothers in Chrisfield, anybody came from out of town and played in the summer league, always had a little bit of fire lit underneath of me just to prove somebody could play. 
as a coach, what game did you always get your players the most psyched up for? I know there's always that one rivalry game, whether whether you're at Washington, whether you're at Chris Field. Was there always a game on the schedule, some coach that you felt like you could go toe-to-toe strategy or gameplay with? Yeah, well, girls-wise, you wanted to beat Mardella and Pocomo. Um, McCool, Coach McCool, and, uh, you know, you kind of wanted to beat her. Uh, because she was like the marquee coach around, you know what I mean? And Coach Gladden at Pocomo, she was another one. They were the big games for the girls. For boys, always Washington High, or when I was at Washington High, it was Chrisfield, you know, because that's the county rivalry, and everybody in the county is going to be in that gym. And if they're not in the gym, they're going to be, you know, trying to get in the gym to watch that game. So that was big. Um, Why High? Your Snow Hills, your Pocos, they're so good and so competitive. You kind of get pumped up for those games. The buzz is in the air on those nights, you could say, I guess, you know. Yeah, I can definitely think of so many games where you're told get there early because they're not letting anybody in after a certain point. And if you don't get there in time, you're not getting in unless you got to Oh, yeah, pass. absolutely. Back in the day, I mean, if you if you didn't get there before the JV game started, you were done. You're not getting in, you know. Good times. Coach Bosman, I really appreciate you being on and taking time out of your busy schedule. What are ways that people can reach out to you? I don't know how much you do social media other than Facebook. Nowadays, everybody's sort of limiting what they're doing on social media. Yeah, I know. Well, anybody can, they can inbox me on Facebook if they want to contact me or they can call Christopher High School. It's 410-968-0150. My email is gbosman at somerset.k12.md.us. You know, they can reach me in, in any of those uh, ways. I'd like to eventually just start doing workouts again. It's been hard because of COVID. You can't, you know, you can't get in the gym. And I really enjoy doing the individual workouts. So I want to try to start them back up. And I don't, you know, and I'm not criticizing. But I don't charge anybody. You know what I mean? My joy is when they improve and they get better. You know, I want to see them you know, you go to a game and you see, a, you know, a kid and you've worked with them a little bit, and, you know, you don't take the full credit or anything, but you know, you had a little part in them, you know, getting better and playing. So that's the joy of it all, trying to give back. As I often covered Bosman during his various coaching stints, it was good to get more insight on not only his basketball journey, but how much desire and passion he still has for the sport. Next time, my guest will be my brother, Edward Holland, as we take on the hot wing challenge of 10 different flavors of hot sauce while talking sports. That's one you're definitely not going to want to miss. For those of you who are new to the podcast, you can follow us on Facebook at The Sports Refuge Sports Blog and on Twitter at The Sports Refuge. Episodes can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever podcasts are heard. You can also find video of previous live streams and some of our most recent episodes on YouTube by searching for The Sports Refuge. Until next time, this is Earl Holland saying thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. You've been listening to the Sports Refuge Podcast. For more information about our show and our guests, go to our website at thesportsrefuge.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Sports Refuge, on Instagram at Sports Refuge Sports Blog, and on Facebook at The Sports Refuge Sports Blog. Thank you for listening.